Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, breakfast, black coffee, one slice of dry toast. No butter, no jelly, no jam. Lunch, just some lettuce, two celery stalks, no booze, no potatoes, no ham. Dinner, one chicken wing, broiled, not fried, no gravy, no biscuits, no pie. And this diet and diet and diet and diet and sure is a rough way to die. So pass me a carrot stick, peel me a prune, one glass of skim milk and that's all. Turn off the TV for the Big Mac commercial. It's that is Shel Silverstein putting into words something a lot of people feel, which is, at times anyway, a diet that you go on may feel like the why live diet. You have to give up so many things that you like and eat so many things that you don't like that the purpose of the diet in the first place begins to be obscured. Uh, that's something we'll talk about today. We're going to talk about the culture of dieting, uh, the weight stigma here in the U.S. and in other countries, uh, talk about the history of it. We're going to talk about whether diets can ever work, whether they can be an effective way to lose and keep weight off. Uh, and we'll also talk near the end about the cultural moment of the 90s. Uh, we're looking at it, at it again through the lens of Princess Diana uh, in both The Crown and Spencer. Uh, we're looking at it in, uh, in terms of Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp and the Clinton impeachment. We're looking at it through the lens of Katie Couric's memoir. And it seems as though there was something going on in the 90s that might even be more extreme, more punitive than diet culture at the moment. But we also want to look through a long lens. Let me tell you who's here in the first segment. Uh, Virginia Soul Smith uh, is the author of The Eating Instinct and a journalist who covers diet culture and weight stigma and who writes the Burnt Toast newsletter and hosts, hosts the Burnt Toast podcast. Louise Foxcroft is a historian and author of Calories and Corsets, a history of dieting over 2,000 years, among other books. So, Louise Foxcroft, let's begin with you. Um, you know, I said before the news, diet is sort of a strange word, right? It, it almost means two opposite things. It's a descriptive word. Your diet uh, is what you eat. Uh, the diet of a tapir is fruits and insects. I, I'm making that up. That might not be true. Uh, <laughs> but um, apologies to any tapirs if I got that wrong. Uh, you know, so it's, it's a description of what a person or another animal eats. And then a diet is also a, a modification uh, and uh, a modification imposed uh, on what a person or perhaps other animal eats. But for how long has that latter meaning been around? Not necessarily to the word diet, because we're going to go back to ancient Greece, right? Yeah, yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, diet, our word diet comes from the Greek dietetica, which is um, describes all of all of the um, food that we eat and the regime under which we eat it. So what's happened over the 2000 years and especially in the last 200 years is that it's become distorted into this idea of the quick fix fad diet guaranteed to fail every time. <laughs> but the original diet is a lifelong routine of eating. It's a, it's to do with personal responsibility and social responsibility, healthy body, healthy mind. 
That sounds preferable to what we have now, uh, although perhaps tied to fewer book sales. Um, so <clears throat> would this yeah. be a conversation that, that, that uh, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle would be having with their confreres? Yeah, I uh, I put it more towards the philosopher physicians like Hippocrates okay. and Galen, but um, but all these people had a very good idea of how we should be and how we should be within a society and as a society. So it is a question of responsibility, and it's a question of. Um, it's a moral question as well, which of course comes up over the years in various different forms because the body is, uh, you know, everybody likes to police the body and police the orifices in one way or another. Um, <laughs> but it's the idea that you you eat regularly, you eat cleanly, you eat uh, plainly, you you don't eat too much, you sleep well, you work well. The Greeks did also suggest that you vomit after meals and run around naked, you know, so it's not all good news, but it's a lifelong thing. It's not this quick fix fad thing that we have now, which is so destructive. Right. And, and I feel as though, I mean, with the Romans, we tend to think in terms of the Feast of Trimalchio and, and vomitoriums and stuff like that. Yeah. But I would imagine <laughs> that that would be an exception and an excess among a certain class uh, of Romans or, or people in antiquity. Yeah, of course. And, and class affects diet and dieting throughout history, just as it does today, of course, because you'll find a lot of um, uh, a lot of criticism thrown at the poorer and working classes as not knowing how to eat or not being able to afford to eat properly, some of which, of course, is true. But that patronising idea that because you're poor, you're necessarily overweight. I mean, that's particularly perhaps to do with Great Britain. I'm not so sure what happens in America, but um, the, the idea of morality and punishment goes hand in hand with diets and dieting and pontification about the subject. Yeah. Yeah. We can talk about that here in America in just a second. But I would also assume yeah. over the centuries there have been moments where corpulence was, would be kind of a good sign, right? I mean, it would be a sign that there was enough food. And, and I don't know. I, 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 don't think, yeah. I don't think Henry VIII was ever told by anybody he had to lose weight. I mean, he didn't take criticism very well anyway. But um, no. the, there must have been times where pointing to certain people in society who, who would be uh, a little on the heavy side might be a good sign. There's, there are so many There are so many aspects to it because you've, you've mentioned class um, of course, wealth and status and education come into it as well. Um, there are times when there is a, there is plenty, and at which point the sort of pressure drops off a bit. There are times of dearth where there's not much food around. So perhaps during the Middle Ages and the early modern period, you know, up to about 1750, where there are a lot of essays published, Castle of Health, for example, your body being the castle, where government ministers are writing, um, telling people how to eat a peasant diet. So partly it's because there's not much food around, partly you shouldn't be greedy, and partly for our uh, health of the for the health of the nation. And greed is an interesting one as well, because it depends where you are in society. Um, greed is, greed and gluttony, of course, are sins. And so once the church gets involved, as it does very early on, you know, um, hereafter, you know, it's all the worm and excrement and hereafter death, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> um, that uh, obesity and death, the worm, that's it, that's it. I'm trying to think of the quote, which I think is Thomas Aquinas. But, um, you know, the uh, 
the the bigger body betrays your greed, as it were. I mean, that's how it was thought of. So the sin of greed and gluttony is a visible sin and it's written on the flesh, unlike um, adultery or whatever else you might be getting up to. So it's a very visible thing. Yes, you're right. And of course, a lot of body shaping and shaming, um, that's not a new thing. And uh, the general idea, particularly of women, I think, when most of their value and their worth uh, is hmm, resides in how they look, because they can't earn a living in any other way. I'm talking historically, obviously. Um, there's a huge pressure on them to look a certain way. And the body shape changes throughout the centuries, depending on, as I've said, times of plenty, times of dearth, but also times of war and uh, economic difficulties. There's an amazing amount of wartime propaganda to do with um, what shape the women are specifically. Right. And the ideal shape fluctuates over time. I think we're, we're coming yes. up to a moment when we can tie uh, Virginia Soul Smith into this conversation. I, I do feel um, uh, it behooves me to mention that in 2015, uh, Pope Francis was told to cut down on pizza uh, and uh, exercise more that he was putting on weight. So the church is not, is not immune from these concerns, no, at least from time no, to time. What you look like is your is your message to the rest of the world, isn't it? How much space you take up, it's, um, it's what you're saying to the world. And if you lose a lot of weight, that says something different about you. So Virginia Soul Smith, uh, as you listen to Louise Foxcroft, uh, some of the things she would might be saying about, say, the period from 1850 to 1900 aren't that different. I mean, it, it isn't necessarily the case that people, that women are so completely locked into the only prospect being, uh, you know, to marry well and all that kind of stuff. But but it just does still seem as though it's women who bear the, the greatest burden uh, of this notion that whatever you weigh, it's probably too much. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think um, it's fascinating to hear Louise trace it all the way back um, through that history. I think we are very much still living with all of those narratives. Um, and, you know, in the United States, I think we definitely see the intersection with class and we also see it with race. You know, a lot of the beauty ideals that we're still wrestling with today, you can trace back to the end of slavery and when there became a real fear of the black body. And so a lot of our fears about fatness are tied to racism in the United States. And so that's an important piece to reckon with. And so the people who we have allowed to have the most freedom over their bodies are the people in our culture who have the most power, which would be white men. And everyone else has to sort of keep the body under control, you know, fear the unruly body, fear this, you know, reputation of excess, despite the fact that we know that now we know that body size is not as fully tied to what you eat as the, you know, as the Greeks had that misconception. And so, yeah, it all comes back to um, this cultural hierarchy we live in and whatever position you have in it, the more pressure you're going to have around what your body needs to look like. So women certainly bear the brunt of that and women of color even more so. So Louise Foxcroft, is there, can we pinpoint a, a, a moment or a stretch of time where this whole idea, this whole idea of 
eating a specific diet in order not to weigh too much um, became shifted from being simply a norm or a set of, uh, of cultural mores and started to turn into an industry, a profession, a way that people could, in fact, enrich themselves by sending this message and offering Nostrum's solutions. It feels to me like it is somewhere in that latter part of the 19th century. But what do I know? Yeah, no, you you are right. And it's really the rise of the media. So magazines, newspapers, uh, of course, full of advertisements about with diet drugs. They're not new either, mostly consisting of um, lard and arsenic, anything that speeds the metabolism. Um, corsetry, you know, electric devices. If you had electricity, you could plug it into your light socket and hope you didn't electrocute yourself as you um, sort of duck your muscles. All this all this emerged in the mid to late 19th century. That's not to say there weren't diet gurus, for example, for want of a better word, earlier, or diet celebrities earlier. I'd say Lord Byron was the earliest diet celebrity, but it's the media that uh, really brings it to the fore. And then um, on top of that comes the colorometer and the rise and popularity of the calorie, completely mythical, um, in terms of dieting and wrong. And then the movies in America obviously come over here uh, to Great Britain uh, later on. But that where you can see these beautiful slender women all dieting, all with their own diet gurus and how you might want to look like that. So it's image and it's it's image that is spreading everywhere. I feel as though, and correct me if I'm wrong, Louise, but I feel as though even in that sort of Victorian era um, or, or that say that whole 50-year stretch, uh, second half of the 19th century, that already yeah. we had sort of a Gwyneth Paltrow class that wasn't entirely confining its advice uh, and its offers of, of remedies simply to diet and weight. There was a growing obsession with what we now call wellness. I mean, uh, certain kinds of foods were better for you. There are names we still live with today, like Kellogg and Dr. Graham, who introduced the Graham cracker, and there are people taking water cures. And there was sort of a sense that you needed to modify something about yourself. And there was science or pseudoscience offering uh, just to make you better, not just thinner, but better. Yeah. Yes. No, you're, com you're completely right, of course. And I mean, it goes back much further than that. All this aspiration to look a certain way and to be a certain way and to... Um, put yourself across as though you are. I mean, it's 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 human aspiration. We all want to improve ourselves. I don't think there's any doubt about that. But it's how we do it, and then how we are exploited as we're doing it. And the diet industry is particularly exploitative and wicked, and uh, it feeds on misery and humiliation, um, and is extremely dangerous in my view. So Virginia Stoll-Smith, this is a hard thing to pin down in the sense that it's so pervasive at this point. It's, it's like it's in the water. It's in the atmosphere. Uh, it's hard, uh, but I, I wanted to know whether you would hazard a guess or, or more than a guess at this, whether we're getting worse or better about this. I mean, I don't know. I was looking at the nonfiction bestsellers, then there aren't any diet books, and I took that as an, an encouraging sign. But maybe diet culture, weight culture – uh, has become just so granular that it's hard to measure. Yeah, I think it has not gotten better. I think it has gotten more complicated. So 
you know, when we talk about, and I'm excited, we're going to talk about 90s diet culture later on in this program. But, you know, when you think about dieting in the 80s and 90s, um, it was much more straightforward. It was about weight loss. It was about cutting calories. It was about cutting fat. And that was the beginning and end of the story. We have had such a backlash to that concept that the diet industry has gotten a lot sneakier and they've had to get a lot smarter. And so you see big brands like what was formerly known as Weight Watchers rebranding as WW, which fools nobody because every time we talk about it, we say, what does WW stand for? But they're doing that because they want you to think, oh, it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle plan. This is about wellness. This is about health. And because we've now taken, you know, all that morality and, you know, the sort of historical perspective of thinness as this religious virtue, as this moral virtue, we've now integrated that with our understanding of health and wellness. So it's a lot more complicated because, of course, people do worry a lot about health, both practically speaking and because we place great moral value in this country on being healthy. Um, and then when you're told that the only way to achieve health is to achieve thinness, diet culture gets that much more powerful. You know, so much of this uh, clearly does come from the patriarchy, and it's pretty easy to identify that when we're looking at 1875 and maybe even 1975. But it also does seem as though some of the standard bearers have been very, very prominent women. Uh, you know, I mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow, but I mean, mm -hmm. I, I would be remiss if I did not mention Oprah. Uh, of course. I, I, don't, I don't think we've you know, probably gone three months in, in the last 20 years without knowing something about what kind of diet Oprah was on uh, and how it was working out. And and so maybe talk a little bit about that. I mean, were women just kind of co-opted into something that was never very good for them in the first place? Well, you know, when you think about someone like Oprah, you have to remember that Oprah has broken so many boundaries. She is a woman of color. She comes from an extremely poor background. She's an abuse survivor. You know, she has so many marginalizations that she has had to push through to be taken seriously and to be, you know, the force that she is in our world and very often a force for good. You only get so many of those, right? And so there is a game she has to play. And I think that most women in powerful positions have to play this game. And the thin ideal often remains the one barrier that they can't hurdle. They can't say, you know, they can say, I'm going to be powerful. I'm going to be rich. I'm going to be smart. I'm going to have to be thin too. It's really hard to let go of the thin ideal in that. And so, yes, we have women like Gwyneth Paltrow. We have Oprah profiting off the diet industry, while I would argue also being victims of the diet industry. But when you look at mainstream diet culture today, you can absolutely trace almost every popular diet back to a thin white man. I mean, you know, you have Dr. Atkins, you have keto, paleo, all of those have roots in thin white men um, creating these things. And so what we see over and over is our understanding of the quote, right way to eat is a very white ideal. It's a very male ideal. And it's people who don't have marginalized bodies in any way saying, well, listen to me. I know the best way for you to do this. Is there uh, any? Can I, yeah, go ahead, Louise. Sorry. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just I just want to say it, it, it is mostly men, but there are prominent women. Um, Lulu Hunt Peters, Sylvia of Hollywood, various other sort of early 20th century. And it's not that men weren't targeted by the diet industry as well, but they weren't humiliated. They right. it was, To diet was to be efficient and businesslike and sporty and all that sort of stuff, but they were still targeted too. But most of the diet gurus throughout, well, from Luigi Cornaro in the 16th century, right, right up to um, Atkins and Ducan, but they, they start off 
fat themselves largely and then they diet down and then they sell their diets on Lulu Hunt Peter was enormous Sylvia Hollywood was enormous Atkins was he he I think started his diet after he'd suffered with um some did he have a heart attack when he was enormously fat there's a there they've got They've got skin in the game, as it were, in, in many, many ways. And they're not sure. just thin white men. They're quite, I mean, they are usually white men. But it's not just women that are the victims of the diet industry. I do want to. I think that's a really important point. And I would also say, again, though, you have someone saying like, well, this is what worked for me. So it's going to work for everyone else, which is really yeah. flawed. And yeah. on the thin white man, and I would also add people like Michael Pollan, um, Mark Pittman is an example of someone who wasn't a bigger body, has been in a smaller body for a long time. And, you know, folks like that are pursuing or really pushing what we see as the sort of modern wellness culture where it's all about clean eating and organic, always mm. again with the goal of thinness. So, yeah, I was being a little reductive there, but I, you know, I think that's an important point. But there's definitely it circles back to the thin white male ideal over and over again. I've known Mark so long. I knew him the first time he was thin. Um, <laughs> so, um, well, this, we need to break. But, you know, let's just pause there since you mentioned pollen. So some people would look at pollen and they would say, so, he, you know, he boiled it down to uh, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. I don't know. That sounds okay. Is that, but is it not okay? Is, is there a way it in which sounds- it sounds... It sounds okay, but it's pretty hard to implement if you are on a budget, if you are feeding a family, if your time to cook and prepare things from scratch is limited by the fact that you work three jobs. Um, It's not that easy to implement, partly because it's not very specific. And when he does get more specific, he tends to demonize the types of food that are the most affordable and readily available to folks. So I think pollen is really problematic because he started out really pushing an environmental agenda, which I don't really have any quibbles with. I think that you know we do need, obviously, to make changes to our food system to promote the environment. But he immediately tied it to weight as a way of getting attention for that agenda, because it's really hard to get people to care about the plate of organic farmers, but it is not hard to get people to care about their body size. So when he started to sell organic food as a way to achieve thinness, that's when his books became bestsellers. That's when, you know, he kind of spun off this entire culture of wellness that we're in now. And it is a really elitist message. It's a really expensive message. And you can argue, well, we need different changes within our society to make those types of food more affordable and accessible to everyone. I'm here for that. But since we're not doing that, I don't think it's helpful to blame the people who are eating according to their budget and time and life that they have and tell them like, oh, you're doing it wrong because you're not eating more plants. Yeah. I mean, I should say I interviewed Pollen one day at the original Pete's uh, Coffee in Berkeley, and he pointed out that Alice Waters' restaurant was a short part of the triangle away, as was the famous uh, Berkeley Cheese Board, Cheese Mm Co-op, whatever it was called. (laughs) And I was thinking, well, this this is kind of out of reach, you know, I mean, uh, (laughs) of a lot of people. We we should say we have to go to a break, but I I just want to get to this one thing. So Louise Foxcroft, I mean, the elites have always been doing things that the non-elites weren't doing. And there's one that's so colorful, I just really want you to describe us describe it tell our audience about fletcherism oh horace fletcher um uh, an american man sort of edwardian period so what's that sort of early 20th century um he was um an entrepreneur so he had left home at 16 and 
sailed with the Chinese pirates. He'd been a sharpshooter for the Japanese army. He ran an opera company in New Orleans, a printing company in California before he hit on his big diet idea of Fletcherism, named after himself, obviously. And largely it was to do with mastication. He was known as the great masticator. And the idea was that you chewed your food, each mouthful, about 100 times. And some foods needed more, so a shallot might need 700 chews. And you spat out anything that was left and you just swallowed the tasteless juice that remained in your <laughs> mouth. Um, but he was enormously successful. Um, uh, Franz Kafka was a Fletcherite, Henry James, John D. Rockefeller, the American armies and the French armies took on um, Fletcherism for their soldiers, um, for looking after some of the poorer people in the cities. Um, he did fall out of favour, although I think chewing is quite a big thing in some diets still, and particularly in um, mindfulness, chewing your food properly. But I think he took it to excess. And he was, to some extent, um, you know, he, he lived to quite a good age, but he was obviously, he was a bit weird. You know, he uh, he thought one of the benefits of excessively chewing your food was that not only would you lose weight, you would only defecate once every two weeks. And um, he carried a little sample about of his own in a little tin to show people. And he said it had the texture of soft clay and smelt like a warm biscuit. <laughs> All right, I'm so glad we did this. And I just didn't want to, I wanted to point out, since I mentioned uh, before uh, John Harvey Kellogg, that uh, he was an American nutritionist who was not co mm. so concerned about mastication, but about masturbation, which he also thought uh, people should, yeah. not, should not be well, doing. Well, the two go hand in hand, right. I'm sure. Good luck with that. Um, all right, so we we have to uh, pause now, take a break. We reluctantly say goodbye to Louise Foxcroft. Uh, her book is Calories and Corsets, A History of Dieting Over 2,000 Years. We will be back with more of Virginia Stole Smith, Soul Smith, and some other people as well. You have to. Sometimes you might eat an apple or pear. Make sure you chew it and eat it with care. Chew, chew, chew it up well. Chew. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
All right, so we're back. Um, still with us is Virginia Soul Smith, author of The Eating Instinct, and a journalist who covers diet culture and weight stigma and who writes the Burnt Toast newsletter and hosts the Burnt Toast podcast. Um, Evan Foreman joins us now, a professor of psychological and brain sciences and director of the Center for Weight, Eating, and Lifestyle Science at Drexel University. Now, let me be honest, all right? You know, I'm, I always probably carry a l- little bit more weight than, let's say, the average Marvel Cinematic Universe hero. Um, and probably during the pandemic, no, not probably, definitely during the pandemic, I've been stress eating, I've been depressed, I've been worried about a whole bunch of things. Uh, I've put on a more weight. So from a certain point of view, I should go on a diet. Uh, but the other thing that I hear a lot, uh, Evan Foreman, is that if I go on a diet, it won't work. It won't take, it won't last. Uh, there isn't a diet that I can go on that has any real enduring promise. So, so, so help a person like me out. How should I think about this? Yeah, great question. Well, first of all, I wouldn't necessarily say that you should go on a diet. I think there's a lot to think through about whether that makes sense or not and why you would or wouldn't. I also think that, uh, the word diet is so complicated because everyone means something slightly different by it. What I would say is that, uh, a lot of diets, uh, maybe most of them don't work. And in fact, uh, put people in a worse position than they were when they first started them. But I also think that there are weight loss programs that have proven to be very successful for most people. And certainly the ones that, um, you know, we've developed, many of my colleagues have developed and have been researching for, for decades now have proven very successful and people who elect to join them are very uh, pleased with the, you know, with their outcomes and feel better about themselves in terms of their health, their mobility, their happiness. So from that point of view, you know, depending on what you mean by a diet, the answer, and depending on what you want out of your life, the answer could be yes or no. Right. And I think probably what most people mean by diet is something where I change my eating behavior so that I lose weight. I mean, uh, and, and so I just want to stay with you for a second and then uh, bring Virginia into this. So, I mean, some reasons why I might want to do that would be that my blood pressure will probably go down and I struggle a little bit with hypertension, uh, that uh, my knees will feel better. I've got arthritis in my knees. Uh, I'm, you can tell I'm 67 years old and I'm falling apart. And, you know, I mean, then there's the whole sort of diabetes to blood sugar thing. There, I mean, I assume just from a medical standpoint, there's probably a good argument for a lot of us trying to lose some weight. Yeah, I mean, there is some debate about this at, at, at some level, you know, among scientists, but on, on almost all studies will show that if, if you are uh, like a, a well above a certain weight and you bring your weight down by, let's say, 5% or even 10%, you will experience a, you know, significant health benefits. I think, I think almost most people will agree with that. So, meanwhile, Virginia, if we decide that maybe that's a good idea, what he just described is a good idea, we then throw ourselves more or less on the pyre of the of the diet industry, which is this gigantic beast with a tremendous amount of of noise uh, in, through which we're trying to find some kind of signal. Um, so, I don't know. Tell tell me a little bit more about how you see that. Well, I want to back up a second and say, I didn't decide it was a good idea for you to go on a diet, Colin. Um, I am going to disagree with some of what Evan just said. 
when we see those the research showing the benefits of if you lose a few pounds, you notice these improvements in your health markers, none of the research shows a causal relationship between the pounds lost and the health improvements. What we think is more likely is that the behaviors you've changed have led to the health improvements. You've started walking more, you're eating more vegetables, you're sleeping better. Lifestyle changes definitely improve health. But do we need to focus on weight in order to achieve lifestyle changes? I would argue we don't. And in fact, we probably shouldn't because when we focus on weight, we end up in, yes, trapped within the diet industry with all of the sort of damage that that can cause. Also, we end up in this culture where we are perpetually reinforcing weight stigma and the idea that fat bodies are less valuable than thin bodies. So there's a whole loaded cultural narrative you're taking part in that's harmful to people around you and is harmful to yourself as well. And often the research on diets doesn't look closely enough at the experience of weight stigma and the impact that that has on health. There's some really good research coming out of UConn, Rebecca Poole leading it, that shows that experiencing weight stigma increases cortisol, increases stress levels, increases a lot of the health problems that we are worried about and associating with larger body sizes. So I think we really need to think carefully about if our goal is less knee pain for you and lower blood pressure, is focusing on weight going to get you there? Or do you just need to make some lifestyle changes regardless of whether you lose weight? I'll hand the baton back to you, Evan Foreman. Yeah. I, uh, I mean, my read of the literature is, is a bit different that um, we do see that weight is a causal factor. Um, you know, when we really systematically analyze the literature, I guess I would also say that certain lifestyle changes and in particular, for example, um, what you eat, what you choose to eat, I mean, they have a direct influence on weight. So it's almost impossible to separate the two. Uh, so I, I, I do think like, I think knee pain is a good example where um, the weight that you're carrying does have a direct impact on like, you know, the amount of strain on, on your knees. And it doesn't mean that you, again, it's, it might not be worth it to you, uh, or it may not be something you choose to do. I, I totally agree that it's something that each person needs to be empowered to make his or her own decisions about these kinds of things. But if you did decide to lose weight and uh, for the purposes of helping your knees be in a healthier place, I, I think like we as uh, clinicians should get behind your decision and we can help you do it in a way that's healthy and effective. And I don't think in any way would uh, worsen or, or, or create a stigma about, about yourself or your weight. We'll go back to Virginia on that in just a second, but I want to stay with you for a second because now it sounds like you're talking to me about the signal instead of the noise. The noise is like the South Beach diet. I think it's like one of the best selling books in the history of publishing. You know, uh, there there's this huge industry that's out there that we keep referring to worth billions and billions of dollars. I assume, Evan Foreman, that's not what you're talking about in term, when you say we can probably help you. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I think there's... Um there's a real attraction to, you know, what you, what you're calling fad diets because they seem to offer like an, an easy solution, almost a magical solution, you know, changing, you know, changing the way that you live, changing your lifestyle, the way you exercise, the, the way you eat. It's so difficult. I mean, um, you know, it's a universal struggle almost. We, we, the way our brains work and, and uh, which is to like, which has evolved at a time when it was hard to get enough food to eat and we were at risk of starving is really not a good match for 
our current life where there's way too much food around, very high calorie food around us all the time. And so it, there's a struggle and in the struggle, we're looking for easy solutions. And these, these, these fad diets, these name diets, especially with all the billions of dollars in advertising behind them, they seem to offer a really easy solution and uh, they tend not to work very well, if at all. So Virginia Soul Smith, one of the messages I think I'm getting from you is it's almost impossible to imagine being able to make a clear, independent decision about this in terms of risk, in terms of benefit, in terms of suffering versus value, because we're already saturated. We're saturated with all kinds of messaging about our body. Uh, we, we can't really think for ourselves, uh, given just how much washes over us all the time. Well, we can absolutely think for ourselves, but I think we need to give ourselves grace about the amount of noise and stigma we're encountering. I think, you know, when we are focusing on these specific health problems, I think if you talk to folks who live in larger bodies and who have had these kinds of medical experiences of going in to say, I'm worried about my knee pain and being told you need to lose weight. When someone in a thinner body coming in with knee pain would be told, try physical therapy, try strengthening exercises. We start to see how it's not just the South Beach diet. It's not just the loud, flashy diet culture that you can identify with a capital D. It's the pervasive weight stigma that is showing up in every aspect of our culture and is definitely showing up in medical settings. You know, a Canadian survey found that 24% of physicians admitted they were uncomfortable having friends in larger bodies. 18% said they felt disgusted when treating a patient with a high body mass index. I think, you know, there are certainly great doctors out there trying to provide really good medical care for folks in larger bodies, but it is important for us to understand when you go into that conversation, weight stigma is in the room and it is impacting your health and it's impacting the health care you're receiving. Evan Foreman, I'm going to ask you a question, which I just want to just preface it by saying I'm, I'm not in QAnon or anything like that. Uh, <laughs> but I, I started to read some research and I can even pin it down to a biostatistician named David B. Allison and his co-authors at the University of Alabama in Birmingham, where they were finding that over the past 20 years or so, not only were Americans as a, American humans as a species adding weight, putting on weight, but so were like laboratory animals whose diets are monitored really carefully. Macaques, chimpanzees, vervet monkeys, mice, both domestic and, and feral, domestic dogs, domestic cats, feral rats. Is there something else going? I mean, and they've started to look into stuff like BPA and stuff like that. Is there something else going on here? Is there a reason that we're getting heavier that isn't at all connected to what we eat? I think that there are probably a lot of factors, some of which have yet to be uncovered. So it's a, yeah, it's a great question. I, I would still say, you know, what we're eating, um, I like our food environment and uh, is, is still the biggest influence. But you have to think about what's, first of all, what's in our food and what's in our water. For example, there have been theories about uh, antibiotics as, as, and pretty strongly supported theories really about how antibiotics affect our weight regulation and gut microbiota and such. So I think it's a great question there's, and there's probably something to it that's affecting not just our food and water, but maybe the whole planet's. All right. So, yeah, it's not uh, I, I, I'm glad to hear that because I started to feel like a chemtrails loony or something. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, so, you know, we're going to be saying farewell to you. 
as we head into our final segment. Uh, so let me ask you one more question. So you, you might have heard me say earlier or cite uh, Pollen's famous famous maxim, eat real food, not too much, mostly plants. I mean, do you have kind of a version of that, like a, sim- a simple thing that you say to people rather than having a two-hour conversation with them? Um, there's a few things we've tried out that, that, um, that have gone over well. I mean, uh, most of which are a little too complicated for like a soundbite, but like one we've talked about is, uh, you know, control what you can and accept what you can't. And that includes things like you're going to want food and it's all around you. And so you're going to be tempted by it and you can't really do anything about that, but you can, you can make behavioral choices. You can decide what food is in your home, what food is, uh, you bring with you, whether you eat out at certain restaurants and so on. So that like, that's a big deal. And the other thing I would just add is this is so hard, changing your lifestyle, changing your eating, changing your exercise habits. I mean, that's very, very hard to do on your own. So getting professional help, you know, is really makes a huge difference. Most people who try this on their own, they're just not going to be successful. You're, you're swimming upstream. And so I would say getting help is a, is a really good idea. All the research supports that. Yeah, Virginia, I know that you, you say there's, our bodies make dieting hard. Yeah, I mean, our biology is set up to protect us from famine, and your body can't really tell the difference between the paleo diet or a medically prescribed weight loss plan and famine. So once you start restricting calories, um, your body is going to slow down your metabolism, spike hunger hormones, you're going to be more preoccupied with food. And all of that is a feature, not a bug. I mean, that was designed to keep us alive. So it is, that is the number one reason that we see such high failure rates with all types of deliberate weight loss. Um, You know, it's the reason that weight loss medications only work as long as you stay on them and manage whatever side effects they're causing. So I think it's really something to keep in mind. Like this is something your body is not wired to do. And again, if we go back to what's going to promote health, is it going to promote health to pursue something that you may not achieve because we know weight loss is so difficult to achieve and that's going to bring all this stigma and complicated relationships with food with it? Or are you better off thinking about small changes you can make within the constraints of your life that will promote your health? All right. We have to stop there. Uh, We're going to go to our next segment. Uh, I don't know about anybody else. I'm catching the next plane to Drexel University. Uh, Evan Foreman is professor of psychology and brain sciences uh, and director of the Center for Weight, Eating, and Lifestyle, uh, Lifestyle Science at Drexel University. Thank you very much. We'll take a break. We'll come back with more. These are just a couple of my cravings Everything it seems I like's a little bit stronger A little bit thicker, a little bit harmful for me If I should buy jelly beans Have to eat them all in just one sitting So we're back. It is time for me to say some thank yous, uh, starting with Kat Pastor. She is the person who uh, keeps things running here as our, our technical producer. Uh, and uh, this particular episode was produced by the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson. With us is Virginia Soul Smith, author of The Eating Instinct and uh, writer of the Burnt Toast newsletter and the host of the Burnt Toast podcast. Joining us now is Constant Grady, a senior reporter for Vox and the author of the recent article, Looking Back at the 90s, has been reexamining the 
decades toxic diet culture. And before we get Constance going, uh, let me remind you a little bit of what that sounded like. This uh, is the uh, dramatization uh, of the Clinton impeachment scandal uh, that uh, that appeared this year with uh, Monica, Monica Lewinsky being played by Beanie Feldstein, Linda Tripp being played by Sarah Paulson. They're talking over lunch in uh, episode one of Impeachment, American you Crime Story. must be Story. someone's pet rock. What's a pet rock? That just means somebody in the White House is looking out for you. Doesn't feel like it. Confidential assistant to the assistant secretary, and you're so young. I'm about to turn 23. That's not young. Not to me. Oh, God, of course not. Look at you. You have the life experience of a zygote. <laughs> just know not a few people in that office covet your job. Ugh, well, they can have it. I'm going back in a few months. To the White House? Not like it was my idea. Why did they transfer you? Oh. I don't know. It's a whole thing. I just wish I'd brought from home. Weight Watchers makes these amazing meals you can microwave. Oh, I have seen those at Safeway. They're low fat, so you don't want to kill yourself oh, later. Wait, you need to worry. Are you kidding You're me? You're gorgeous. Ah, uh, not in Beverly Hills. In second grade, they called me Big Mac. My high school, they called me Gus. Gus? <laughs> Why? What does that mean? I don't know. Nobody ever explained. So, uh, uh, Constance Grady, um, as you write in Vox, um, that's the dramatization. But when you go back and look at the actual tapes, so to speak, because Tripp was wired, uh, it's – it's, if anything, even more repetitious in terms of the obsession that each of these women had, the degree that they – their conversations were imprisoned by weight loss talk. Yeah, it's actually – a really interesting um, part, uh, kind of under-discussed part of the Linda Tripp tapes. The thing that Monica Lewinsky and Linda Tripp are mostly bonding over in their phone conversations is their diets and their exercise regimes. Um, And at the time, this actually became a means of humiliating them when the tapes went out. So the very first Saturday Night Live Linda Tripp and Monica Lewinsky sketch is... Linda and Monica talking on the phone about their diets while they're eating enormous amounts of junk food. Um, And there's uh, Molly Shannon as Monica Lewinsky at one point goes, all I care about is being thin. And she's eating like a pint of Haagen-Dazs with whole milk poured on top of it. And the joke at the time was considered to be, these are women who are obsessed with weight loss and obsessed with being thin. And yet they're clearly not as thin as we expect them to be. Therefore, this is funny and humiliating. It's this sort of toxic double think that uh, was very sort of built into the culture at the time. And now that we have a little bit of distance from it, I think it's more possible to look back and see that contradiction um, and maybe find ways of that it is still playing out in our lives now that we maybe can't see as well. So, you know, it's not obviously just Tripp and Lewinsky. Uh, I have watched both season four of The Crown and Spencer, uh, the the movie uh, about Princess Diana. Both of them feature, uh, of course, Diana uh, retching uh, into a series of toilets uh, as she uh, copes with or fails to cope with bulimia. Uh, you cite also Katie Couric's recent autobiography, uh, which she just talks about her life essentially as one long diet. Well, so uh, I want to hear from both of you, but let's start with you, Constance. What's going on? What's going on with this particular period? 
So I think right now we're in the middle of a big reconsideration of the 90s and the 2000s, which we see in things like the Britney Spears documentaries that have come out recently. Um, Right now, the Pam and Tommy series on Hulu. There's this kind of obsession with the uh, the gendered politics of the era and why we were so mean to so many women at the time. And I think that we can really tie to a generational changing of the guard. We're at this moment right now where a lot of millennials are taking over the pop cultural gatekeeping role that baby boomers traditionally held. So sorry to Gen X, they kind of got skipped. Um, <laughs> And that means that we are able now to look back at millennial childhoods in the 90s and 2000s and be like, oh, wow, I don't agree with what the adults at the time were doing or the way that I thought at the time that maybe I don't agree with now. We have enough distance that we can kind of look back and see how weird it was. I think that the body image stuff of the 90s is especially fruitful because it was a moment particularly focused on thinness. That is not something that has really gone away or necessarily ever gone away in contemporary American history. But that was the era of heroin chic, right? That was the era that was all about exposed clavicles and hip bones. Um, And it was also an era that really made no bones about viciously publicly mocking women who failed to comply to these very, very strict beauty standards. So you have a lot of very public, very formative information that you can work with here to sort of parse out what these beauty standards were, what kind of ideals were embedded within them, and how were the women who transgressed those standards, which to be clear is almost everyone, how are they punished? Right. So Virginia Soul Smith, I've mismanaged the clock as I almost always do. We've only got about two minutes left, but I'd love your take on, on the 90s in that regard. I think Constance, um, you know, her piece and the way she just explained it really hits all the key points. I think another piece that we're reckoning with now is those of us who were teenagers or kids during those decades are, a lot of us are now parents. And so we are not only reckoning with these sort of larger pop culture narratives, we're also looking at how did this impact how I think about having a body and how I think about feeding myself and what changes can I make so that my kids, especially my daughters, but kids of all genders, don't experience the same sort of toxicity that we did growing up. So I think it's really useful to look back on those narratives. I mean, as we talked about earlier, diet culture is still alive and well. It is rebranded as wellness culture. None of that has gone anywhere. But it is an opportunity for us to say, how can we reject the thin ideal that did so much damage to us in our youth? How can we change the conversation and educate our kids about weight stigma, about fat phobia and the harm it causes, and teach them to advocate against that? All right. There we must stop at Constant Grady. Uh, we recommend uh, her article, a senior reporter for Vox. The article, looking back at the 90s, has meant re-examining the dec- decade's toxic diet culture. Virginia Soul Smith has been with us the whole way, author of The Eating Instinct and the podcast and newsletter Burnt Toast. Uh, I'm going to go home and have a glass of water. I don't know what I'm going to do. But uh, thanks very much to those of you who listened, and I hope we shed some light on this very, very complicated and often quite punishing topic. 